0: Welcome to the Rust Report on ESPN, AM 1520. And we're very fortunate today to have the keynote speaker for the General Pulaski Association installation dinner, Andrew Nagorski. And you probably have seen his books in different bookstores all over the country, The Nazi Hunters by Simon & Schuster. Tell you a little bit about Andrew Nagorski. He is an award-winning journalist and author who spent more than three decades as a foreign correspondent and editor for Newsweek. From 2008 to 2014, he was vice president and director of public policy for the East-West Institute and international affairs think tank. Andrew Nagorski is now based in St. Augustine, Florida, but continues to travel extensively, writing for numerous publications. Both of his most recent books, Hitlerland, American Eyewitnesses to the Nazi Rise to Power, Simon Schuster 2012, and Nazi Hunters, Simon Schuster 2016, they've received rave reviews. Our guest today, Andrew Nagorski, and we thank you for coming to Western New York, to Buffalo, to be our keynote speaker. So let's first talk about the evils of World War II, as the author of the Nazi Hunters. How would you describe this, Andrew Nagorski?
1: Well, first of all, Brian, thanks for having me on, and uh, I'm looking forward, of course, to the, to the din- to the Pulaski Society dinner. Um, yeah, to describe the evils of World War II, that is such, it is on such a scale. I mean, every war has its, has its horror stories. Every war has, has some massacres. But what happened under the Third Reich, under Hitler, was that it was industrialized killing of men, women, and children on a scale we'd never seen before. And therefore, uh, one, of the, one of the questions as the war was ending— was how do you begin to get any sort of justice when there are so many people involved in millions of murders? And of course, a, a, and and most prominently of the Holocaust, where the Jewish people were targeted for extermination. Other peoples were exter- were targeted for assassinations, slave labor, and so forth. But the Jewish people were were, were targeted for complete annihilation. So the uh, the big powers Stalin uh Roosevelt and Churchill began discussing this question as early as 1943 2 years before the war ended and if, and they they came up with this notion of holding trials of at least some of the top leaders and trying to say that this was you, we've got to not just have revenge, but we have to have an accounting and also put on the record what happened so that we can try to learn something from it. And that's the or that was the origin of the Nuremberg trials, and that was the origin of the trials that have continued right up till today. Even last year, there were two trials of Auschwitz, former Auschwitz guards in Germany. So this has been an ongoing process, and uh, each of these trials reveals those horrors. Uh, you know, what really happened in those concentration camps, what happened before the concentration camps really became mass killing grounds, and and, and there were special units of German soldiers that just went in and and sh- and lined up Jewish, Gypsy, and a, an assortment of so-called other enemies, and would would mow everyone down. So the the horrors are, no matter how much you've read, and I've interviewed a lot of survivors. Uh, and, and uh, of camps, of, of various massacres, no matter how much you've read, how much you've heard, how much you've seen, you're you're never quite ready to absorb the full dimension of the horrors of World War II.
0: In the Nazi hunters, uh, you talk about the courts in Germany fighting to hold accountable Reinhold Hanning, a 94-year-old former Auschwitz guard who's Charged as an accessory to the murder of at least 117,000 people. Let's uh, talk about people like that. How many people escaped justice who committed mass murders?
1: Well, first of all, you have to say more people escaped justice than ever faced justice. Now, they were at, as the war was ending, there were some indiscriminate killing, particularly by the Red Army, by the Soviet Army. Uh, and there were mass rapes and so forth, which is the way in previous wars it would happen that the victors would simply kill, pillage, rape, and but there would be no sort of uh, systematic justice, and many innocent people were victims to that, uh, and that happened in, 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 as, as 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 Germany was losing the war too, but then there was this attempt to do more systematic justice and they tried to round up some of the most senior figures. of course Hitler had committed suicide and some other uh, and there were a few other suicides but most 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 of most people had either there were some prominent uh, uh, Nazis who escaped to Latin America in particular and and one or two to the Middle East. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was a fa- very famous uh architect of the holocaust who uh who escaped to buenos aires uh but most people actually were hiding in plain sight they went back the people who had been in the gestapo and other other security services who were parts of these killing squads they simply went back and resumed their lives so the idea was to at least get some, some of those people on trial. And right at the end of the war, as I mentioned, there was a Nuremberg trial, which was some of the top leaders, and then there was a series of subsequent Nuremberg trials and Dachau trials, which took place, the U.S. Army carried out. And there were trials also in Eastern Europe. But even that only scratched the surface. And what happened was very quickly the Cold War set in, and both sides got both the the Western Allies and the Soviet Union were much more interested, for instance, in grabbing German scientists who could they could use for their rocket programs than in prosecuting war criminals. And they were, and, and in the case of the U.S., they wanted to get West German West German populace and government in behind them in the Cold War. And so they there was a real after the initial. 3 or 4 years of really trying to to get some justice many of the people who had not been executed yet because there were quite a few a few few senior officials were were executed at, towards the end of the war but those who were who had not been executed immediately eventually many of them were or their sentences were commuted and they got out so there was very little going on in the 50s say and, and then then when Israel managed to kidnap Adolf Eichmann in, in Buenos Aires, bring him back to Israel, hold a trial where people could see really what the whole Holocaust was about, how it functioned, for that spurred other people like the, the people I call the Nazi hunters in my book, some of whom were officials, but some of whom were private individuals, Holocaust survivors of the camps. Uh, people like Simon Wiesenthal, who I knew very well when he was, he was alive. a guest on
0: this program was he yeah yes. yeah
1: yeah and uh, you know an amazing man. Uh, they began to put pressure on governments do you've got to, you've got to bring more people to justice and they would publicize these cases they'd pr- provide them leads and eventually in Germany there was a whole debate about this because in Germany at first, when after the uh, the responsibility for bringing these people to court w- w- was left to the Germans as opposed to the Allied victors, th- they, these cases were treated like normal m- murder trials. You had to kind of prove one uh, what the individual was responsible for what particular deaths, or torture, or other crimes. Now that was hard to do when most of your victims. Had not survived, obviously, and even those who had survived often did their utmost to not to look in the eyes of the people who's who held their life in the balance. And what happened was that eventually, the uh, there was a court case involving an automaker for a, a retired auto worker from Cleveland, J- Ivan Demianik, who had been a camp- right. concentration camp guard. And it was a long, convoluted legal saga, and there was some misidentification at first. But eventually, they convicted this man on the basis that, as a concentration camp guard, he had willingly participated in basically murder inc. This system of murder, and that he could be—he didn't—you he didn't have to pr- prove specific deaths, specific crimes, because he was part of the killing machine. And on that basis, when that ruling came down. That opened the way for other trials of people like uh, Reinhold Hanning, who had been in their early 20s. They were junior guards, but they were also part of that killing machine. And these people who are being tried today or recently— may never see the inside of a jail because even if when they are found guilty, as Hanning has been, they have appeals and so forth, and they may not live to ever serve out their sentence. But I think it is important that legal judgment and moral judgment is passed. Because these were folks who, you know, they always said we were following orders. Everybody Ha, you know, just said uh, we had no choice. Well, in fact, you signed up to be part of the SS, our our concentration camp guard. Mm-hmm. You were recruited, uh, but you could refuse, or you could say, I didn't want to. That probably meant you would be sent to the front, and there would be people shooting at you instead of you killing everyone with uh, defenseless uh, civilians. But that was a moral choice. And so th- the that's why... These last cases are significant. And as I say, each of these cases is important as a w- as a means to educate the next generation about re- what really happened during the war during the Holocaust. For
0: those who just tuned in, we're learning a great deal from famous author, Andrew Nagorsky. Again, the book is the Nazi Hunters. It's published by Simon & Schuster, so it's available throughout the United States and Canada. We highly recommend this to you. Again, Andrew Nagorski is in Buffalo, New York, to be the keynote speaker for the General Pulaski Association Installation Banquet. A little bit about the newspaper that interviewed Andrew Nagorski earlier today. Western New Yorkers love their traditions, and the Ampole Eagle has been writing about Polish-American traditions and events for over 50 years. News and features from a Polish-American perspective can be found in this weekly newspaper, as well as recipes and a calendar of events. Don't don't miss out on the next cultural presentation or polka dance by reading the Ampole Eagle. The Ampo Legal is available in many Tops and Wegmans stores. For home delivery, call 716-835-9454. That's 716-835-9454 to have the latest news from Poland and Polonia in your mailbox each week. And I'm sure that publisher Roger Pahalski will have a very interesting interview. He interviewed Andrew Nagorski for 45 minutes before this taping. A little bit uh, more information about Andrew Nagorski. From 2000 to 2008, Andrew Nagorski served as senior editor for Newsweek International, handling the editorial cooperation between the parent magazine and its expanding network of foreign language editions and other joint venture partners. The new magazines that were launched during his tenure were Newsweek Arabic in 2000, Newsweek Polska, which has become Poland's leading news magazine since it was launched in 2001, Newsweek Russia in 2004, and Newsweek Argentina in 2006. Andrew Nagorski also continued to write reviews and commentaries for Newsweek International. He has been honored three times by the Overseas Press Club for his reporting, the author of The Nazi Hunters, Andrew Nagorski. Now, in The Nazi Hunters, you write about a small band of men and women who refuse to allow the crimes of the Third Reich to be forgotten and who are determined to track down Nazi war criminals. Let's focus on these small bands of men and women who wanted to track down these murderers.
1: Yeah, well, there were, you know, it's always struck me how Individuals can have an impact on society, and even at the time when governments were trying to convict Nazi war criminals, the role of individual prosecutors was very important. So, po- early on in the book, I write about some of the prosecutors who really took the initiative to get this doing going. And one of them, by the way, is Benjamin Ferencz, who just celebrated his—I think—is just celebrating his 97th birthday. He lives in Florida. Uh, a a real dynamic man who was the last surviving prosecutor at Nuremberg. And his story is is, is, when I went to interview him a few years ago for the first time when I was starting the research on the book, he told me how the U.S. had planned uh, these follow-up trials and he was sent as a very junior member of the prosecution team to help gather evidence for the trials. Uh, at At one point, one of his, his co-workers brought him a stack of documents, which were these reports from the Eastern Front of these special killing squads that were going into Ukrainian, <coughs> Russian, Belarusian villages and just lining up Jews and gypsies and others and shooting them. And every day they were sending back reports to Berlin with the exact number of people they'd shot in each village or town. And he, and he said he went back to tell for Taylor, who was the chief U.S. prosecutor, and said, look, we've got chapter and verse on these guys. We know who led these units. We've got to try at least some of them. And Taylor at first did not want to, he said, well, we've already got planned only these 12 trials. We can't do any more, and we don't even have the budget, and I don't even have a prosec- prosecutor free to, to, to handle the case. And he said, and this was, here he was, a 27-year-old guy, Straight out of Harvard Law School, and said, "I'll prosecute the case." He'd never, never prosecuted a trial in his life, and he took on the case, and he prosecuted it, won guilty, victor of verdicts in all of the all of these cases. So, part of it, so I'm talking about people like that, and people like an investigating judge in Poland who who. Uh, insisted not just in prosecuting people like the commandant of Auschwitz, but in getting their testimony in great detail so that we would understand how Auschwitz worked, what the history was of it, so that people would learn from this. And then there were the private freelance uh, investigators, most famously, as I mentioned, Seaman Wiesenthal, who you've had on this program, but also people Mm -hmm. like Beate and Serge Klarsfeld. Interesting enough, some of these people were... Jewish some were not Jewish. Uh, Beata Klarsfeld was from a German Christian family in b- Berlin. She was born in 1939. She grew up after the war. Her father had been in the German army. she like many Germans right after the war, they never talked about really what the war was all about, only that we we had suffered, not what Germans had the German army had inflicted on others. And then at age 20, she goes to Paris as an au pair, takes a job, and then meets a young Frenchman by the name of Serge Klarsfeld, who happens to be from a French-Romanian-Jewish family and whose father died at Auschwitz. They fall in love, they get married, and she suddenly learns about the Holocaust, about what really happened in, in those war years. And she becomes this avid proponent of, of in her own country, of getting more justice. And to give you one example of what she did, at one point in 1968, when the West Germany had a chancellor by the name of Kissinger, who had actually served in the Third Reich and had a position there and helped justify the racial po- racist policies, she was so outraged, she tried to organize protests, but nobody seemed to pay any attention. So she got a a, a a a pass to the national national convention of the christian democratic union is his party and it'd be like going to a convention of the republicans are democrats today national convention and she snuck on stage and then slapped the chancellor in front of everybody and <laughs> shouted nazi nazi you could imagine this is 1968 wow in that year <clears throat> you know, already bobby kennedy and martin luther king had been assassinated in this country and he, she could have been killed absolutely but she is she the security guards throw themselves on her she's arrested briefly then they release her because they realize it's worse publicity if they keep her and that sparked a whole debate in germany which began this whole process of germany beginning to confront its past and that younger generation saying to its to its parents and grandparents you have to tell us what happened in that during the third reich and what you did personally And as a result, I think West German society, not East German society, but West German society at that time began to at least honestly deal with its past, began to teach the horrors of the Holocaust, the horrors of the Third Reich in in its school curriculum. And and this effort and and and, and there it began to be a few more trials to bring that point home, and eventually that spread to France, where Fran- or the French began to dea- deal with their very mixed legacy. And eventually, it even came to this country, where people began pointing to the fact that along the, with the legitimate refugees and displaced persons who came in after the war into this country. There were people who also had been part of, uh, who had been in German-occupied territory and who had participated in mass atrocities, and and the Justice Department sped up, set up a spe- office of special investigations, which, which eventually forced the the stripping of the citizenship of more than a hundred people,
0: uh, over and 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 their and their expulsion from the United States. We're learning a great deal from noted author, internationally acclaimed, Andrew Nagorski, the author of The Nazi Hunters, published by Simon & Schuster. He is in Buffalo, New York, to be the keynote speaker at the General Pulaski Association Installation Banquet. If you're listening in Cheektowaga, Toronto, or Washington, D.C., to our 50,000 watts of clear channel power, drop us a note. We'd like to hear from our Canadian and European listeners also. Please write to Brian Rusk, ESPN Radio, 500 Corporate Parkway, Suite 200, Buffalo, New York, 14226. I'd like to thank those who've called regarding our recent guest, Mike Balani with the Friendship Foundation, Erie County Republican Chairman Nick Langworthy, and John Manzella with World Trade. Coming up, we'll have in this program a program regarding the new Jewish Museum in Warsaw, Poland. Maria Krauss of the Muscular Dystrophy Association and State Senator Pat Galvin. A little bit more information about Andrew Nogorski. In 2009, Poland's Foreign Minister... Sikorski presented Nagorski with the newly created Bene Marito Award for his reporting from Poland about the Solidarity Movement in the 80s. In 2011, Poland's President Komorowski awarded him the Cavalry Cross for the same reason. In 2014, Poland's former President and Solidarity Leader Lech Wałęsa presented the Lech Wałęsa Media Award to Nagorski for dedication to the cause of freedom and writing about Poland's history and culture. Noted author of the book, Nazi Hunters, our guest today, Andrew Nagorski, on the Rusk Report. Now, in your book, you write about uh, those who felt most at risk fleeing the continent um, after World War II. How many people fled the continent, and are there perhaps any of these war criminals still around? Probably this it, it tended to be the more senior people who
1: who who felt that they had to flee. Uh, actually, Beata Klarsfeld, the German Nazi hunter I mentioned, once said, "We didn't have to go to South America. For instance, they were she and her husband were looking for the SS and Gestapo officers who were f- responsible for the deportation of French Jews to concentration to death camps," and she said. We didn't have to go into the jungles of South America. I just looked them up in the Cologne phone book, <laughs> <laughs> and they were. That's you know that's a, But the senior people, like the Adolf Eichmanns, like Mengele, the famed uh, the doctor of Auschwitz, who was called the Angel of Auschwitz in 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 the most ironic terms, since he conducted horrible experiments. Terrible. They they had to flee and they had to disguise their identity. Uh, It's hard to know the numbers. It's probably not that huge, but there was quite a a significant number and some probably very few are still alive today, if any, because because I say they were already older. But as 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 late as the 90s, uh, for instance, there was a a a a, uh, SS captain who was responsible for a massacre just outside of Rome who was uh, who was actually cornered by an ABC crew with Sam Donaldson questioning him, got him on camera, and as a result, Italy eventually extradited him. This Captain Eric Priepke and and tried him and sentenced him, and he spent the, the, his last years and uh, well under house arrest. So there are still cases as recently as that, uh, but again, I'd like to emphasize that most of the people did went back to their lives. And one one short example of that, yeah. Seaman Wiesenthal tracked down the person who had arrested Anne Frank and her family in Amsterdam. Tragedy. A tragedy. He did it because there are people trying to discredit Anne Frank's diary. The the former Nazis were trying to tell young people in Austria, oh, it's not a true story. He said, I've got to prove it. It's a true story, and I'll find the person who had her arrested. He found him. Where did he find this person? After uh, after you know several years of hunting, he was back on his job in the Vienna police force. Unbelievable. Uh, so, and nothing ever happened to him, but he did. It did manage to basically put an end to all those people who are trying to deny the veracity of Anne Frank's story. And as we know, Anne Frank's story has educated successive generations about the Holocaust because that one powerful story of one individual has often a bigger impact than
0: to talk about millions of deaths. Yeah, poor teenage girl suffering like that. We have a minute left on the Rusk Report. What about you and former Secretary Kurt Waldheim? And his wartime passed.
1: Well, you, I, I cover the story when Kurt Waldheim was running for president of Austria in 1986. And it became apparent that he had covered up. I mean, everyone knew he had been in the German army in the Eastern Front, but he conv- conveniently forgot, he said, to mention his all official biographies, that he'd also been in a unit in the Balkans that was involved in war crimes. Whether that made him personally responsible or not was debatable. But he had staged a cover-up, so, I, so I, I, I was one of the reporters who was there. Who I, I also went went into an area in, where, where in Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia, where these massacres took place, and I interviewed survivors. And it was one of these really nasty debates about personal accountability. Uh, and the thing that really bothered me was that Kurt Waldheim very much played up an anti Semitic theme, blaming it all on Jews from outside allegedly stirring this up. And and it created real divisions also among the Nazi hunters because one of the stories of my book is not just it's not just sort of good guys versus bad guys. Mm-hmm. There are also among the Nazi hunters, these were very ambitious, competing individuals and sometimes they had conflicts over tactics. And Wiesenthal, for instance, had who was based in Vienna, was did not like the way the World Jewish Congress, which was based in New York, handled the case. So it's a very complicated story, but I think uh, you know, Kurt Waldheim, no question had
0: at the very least lied by omission about what he had Sorry, done. Sorry, we have to bring the Rusk Report to a close. We've learned a great deal from the speaker at the Pulaski Banquet, the author of The, the Nazi Hunters, Andrew Nagorski, published by Simon & Schuster. Special thanks to Kevin Carr, director of production for the last 15 years. Thank you for enlightening us, author Andrew Nagorski. My pleasure. Have a great week.